This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. So this morning, we're going to close out our short little Easter series that we're doing here in the Old Testament book of Isaiah that we're calling Behold the King. And in these prophecies written by Isaiah over 2,700 years ago to this divided nation of, of Israel, we, we began our series in chapters 9 and 10 seeing our need for the King. And then on Palm Sunday in chapter 11, we saw God's promise of a king. And then last week on Easter Sunday in chapter 12, we saw how on on this day and every day until the day when our promised king returns and he reigns, we we, we gather together as God's people to worship God, to worship this promised king, the king of kings, the one who Scripture says was and is and is to come again. And like last week, last week was awesome, wasn't it? Like the room was full. It was, uh, we got to see faces that we'd not seen in a long time. We got to hear the sound of kids that we'd not heard in a long time. And like, can I say one more time for the parents in the room? I love the sound of your kids here. I love it. And I want to hear more of it. So it's good. Um, it's kind of nice that they're downstairs too. They're running around in the gym. But man, I love it. I really miss them worshiping with us. But bring, bring the kids. They're great. They're not a problem. They're a blessing. Amen? Okay. That was a little tangent. We got a few of those today. I told you it's about reminders, right? But it was also a reminder of what makes this time so special, wasn't it? Being in the presence of God with each other to worship God with each other. And, and what we found is that our faith was strengthened and our hearts were filled with joy as we drew from the well of salvation, as Isaiah said. And as great as last Sunday was, as last weekend was, I also know that we've probably all experienced the other end of that emotional roller coaster over this last year, haven't we? Times when God has felt so distant you couldn't even feel Him. Times when God sounds so, so silent that you can't even hear Him. And you're left asking sometimes, like, God, where are you? Where are you? Like, are you, are you listening as I pray? Are you, are you listening? Do you see everything that's going on in this world? Do you see? And if you do, do you even, do you even care because God, it kind of feels like you're, you're hiding from us. And God, like, I, I thought that you said that this promised king, Jesus, that he was going to return, like, that he was going to right every wrong and restore all that's broken. And there's a whole lot wrong and there's a whole lot broken. He's got a lot of work to do. And so maybe if he came right now, he could get a head start on that, God. When's that going to happen? Because to be honest, like, I'm not sure how much more I can take and how much longer I can wait. And so we find ourselves crying out, come Lord Jesus. We, we, we cry out in our prayers, thy kingdom come and please come quickly. But we're not the only ones to cry that, to lift that up in our prayers. As we come to these final 11 chapters in the book of Isaiah, we see that he, he's no longer writing to the people of his day, but to a people of a, of a day yet to come. After this kingdom had been destroyed and the people taken away into exile. And they were waiting on God to send this promised king for this Messiah to arrive and to rescue God's people and to restore God's people. 
man, they were growing weary waiting in exile, weren't they? And what's interesting is Isaiah could hear their future cry. He captured their prayer of lament in chapter 63 and 64. And what we see in those two chapters in this prayer is, in verse 15, it says, that, Look down from heaven, God. Look down and do you, do you see our suffering? Do you see what we are experiencing here in exile? Where are you, God? They say in verse 18 that your holy people are being held possession. We are being held prisoner. And your holy sanctuary, the temple back in Jerusalem, has been trampled. It has been leveled. And in verse 4 of chapter 64, they declare, though, that no eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for them. They knew God was powerful. And so they confess their sins and they ask God in verse 5, shall we be saved? But then they accuse God in verse 7. They say, you, you've hidden your face from us. You, you've, you've turned from us, God. And, and they ask in verse 12, how long will you keep silent, God? How long will you afflict us so terribly? And what they're really asking is, are you still faithful to fulfill the promises that you've made to us? And I think that cry, I think it captures how we've all felt at some point, hasn't it? I, I know it has for me. It may even capture how you're feeling right now in this very moment. But see, that context of that prayer of lament, I think it's necessary to see what makes God's response in this morning's passage to their cry, this answer to their prayer, such an encouraging and timely reminder for us. A reminder that strengthened the faith of God's people and gave them hope in the midst of exile, in the midst of their waiting. A reminder that I pray, pray does the same for you, for us, as we wait on God. Waiting on God to move in your life, in our world. A reminder that I think is going to show us once again God's faithfulness. That He is faithful to fulfill every promise He'd ever made. Fulfilling those promises through His promised King, Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to see this morning as we turn to Isaiah chapter 25 in a sermon called The Reminder of the King. And so if you haven't already, let's go ahead and let's take out our Bibles and let's turn to Isaiah chapter 65, right at the end of Isaiah, uh, just a little bit past the halfway point in your Bible just before Jeremiah. Isaiah chapter 65. And this morning we're going to, we're going to remember two important promises that God has made. A promise of salvation secured by this promised king. And a promise of a coming kingdom ushered in by the promised king. And along the way, we're going to see a number of reminders that Isaiah gives us in this passage. Reminders of who God is. Reminders I think we need because we're quick to forget, aren't we? Amen? We're quick to forget. And so we need these constant reminders. And so here's number one. Why don't you jot this down? Remember God's promise of salvation secured by his promised king's death. Remember God's promise of salvation secured by His promised King's death. God begins this response by reminding His people of His presence among them. Isaiah, he begins here, chapter 65, verses 1 and 2. God says, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me, and I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. And I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good following their own desires. 
And to help us kind of see who it is that God's talking to, if we flip ahead to Romans chapter 10, Paul, he gives us some insight here. Always helpful, a little tidbit as you're reading the Bible. It's always helpful when you can use Scripture to interpret Scripture. Probably no greater commentary on the Old Testament than the New Testament. Uh, Using those passages that are clear to shed light on those that are less clear. And what Paul helps us see here is that in verse 1, God's responding to Uh, His people's cry, the cry of the nation of Israel, he's responding to their cry by speaking of another nation, a nation not called by name, a nation other than Israel. He's not, although he's speaking to his people, he's not speaking about his people here in verse 1. No, he's speaking about the Gentiles of of a pagan people who worshiped other gods. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? Like God's responding to his people's cry. Their cry of... Uh, their perception, if you will, of his distance, of his silence, by describing his interaction with an entirely different people. And and what he's saying is that he's revealing himself to a people who who did not seek me. He's making himself known to a people who did not know him. And the reason he's doing it is so this other people will seek him and so that they will know him. And I think we see our first reminder here in this opening verse. And this first reminder that I want us to see is that God always moves first, doesn't He? God always moves first. That's kind of a humbling thing to hear. See, God cannot be found unless He desires to be found. God cannot be known unless He desires to be known. And praise God that He desires to be found and desires to be known. Jesus, He says the same thing to His disciples in John chapter 15. He tells them, You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. God always moves first. And then we come to verse 2, and and, and God now, He he shifts back to talking to His own people. To the, the people to whom He says He has spread out His hands all day, every day. To a nation called by His own name, the nation of Israel. Yet to a nation that was filled with a rebellious people. People who had grown weary of waiting on God. See, they, they felt as though God had failed them, as though He had forgotten them. And what do we do when we feel like God's not going to help us? We help ourselves, don't we? And so they turned to others. They trusted in others that they thought would help them. And in the midst of it, all it did was lead them further and further away from God as they walked on their own way, a way, God says, that was not good, following their own devices, led by their own desires. And we are prone to do the same thing, aren't we? Like we are easily swayed by our emotions. Our emotions are good. We should be in tune with them. We should understand them. But yet we're easily swayed and led by our emotions. And and our emotions, they can skew our perception of reality. They distort the truth, don't they? And as difficult as year one of this pandemic was, I think year two is proving to be even more difficult. Amen? Even more difficult, and I think we're being even more led by our emotions in the midst of this. And what we're doing is we're taking these little bits of information that we have. And rather than assuming the best and asking questions to clarify, what I think we find ourselves doing more and more is assuming the worst and making judgments in order to criticize, aren't we? Rather than assuming the best, we're assuming the worst. And we're, we're doing that to each other. But we're also doing that to God in the midst of this. 
And so what that means for us is that just because God feels distant, just because God sounds silent, doesn't mean that he's not present. It doesn't mean that he's not speaking. And so here we see our our second reminder that I want us to see this morning, and it's this. God is always present. We're just not always seeking his presence. God's always present. He is omnipresent. He is, uh, he's everywhere, just to like let you in on a little secret. He's everywhere. We're just not always seeking his presence. Right? God's not gone anywhere. God's not like playing a game of hide and seek with us, right? God's not out. You don't have to yell like Marco and then wait for God to yell back, Polo. No, we're not playing a game because it'd be coming from everywhere if we actually played that game. God's like the worst hide and seek player, I think, that ever played the game if that was the case. He's right here. He's right here and he's calling out, here I am, here I am, revealing himself to you because he wants you to to seek him, to come to him, to find him so that you will know him. But man, you're never going to find God if you never seek God, are you? And the further down the priority list that we put God in our lives, the further away he's going to seem. The further away he's going to feel, the more silent he's going to sound. Man, God, God's not gone away. God's where he always was. We are the ones that have drifted away. But I think we also see the third reminder here, and that is that God is always speaking. We're just not always listening to his voice, are we? God is always speaking. We're just not always listening. And, and hear me say, I'm not, I'm not saying you should expect an audible voice from heaven that, like, that's what my mic sounds like when we first get in on Sunday and we haven't quite dialed it in yet. Sometimes I wish the mic did just sound like this. Or at least if the mic could give me like a Scottish accent, that'd be great too. Any one of those. Man, but when we open the Bible, when we read the pages of Scripture, man, do you, do you understand that you are reading the very words of God? Like Paul said in, in 2 Timothy 3.16, that these words, they are the words of Scripture, they're breathed out by God. Man, what that means is it's really hard to hear God speak through a closed Bible, isn't it? It's hard to hear God speak through a closed Bible that sits on your shelf, that sits in your car. But when you open that Bible, God speaks to you. He's revealing himself to you. He's making himself known to you. But if we're honest, we don't always like what God has to say, do we? We we don't. There's some of those passages that we're like, I kind of... I kind of wish maybe this whole page wasn't there. Uh, kind of like, you know, how buildings skip floor 13. I think there's some, some pages we just assume we skipped. We don't always like what he has to say. We just rather he stay silent sometimes, to be honest. We're kind of like a kid at bedtime. When you yell at your kids at bedtime, uh, if you don't have kids, here's how it goes. It's bedtime, which means things. It means the same thing that it's meant every day for the last 10 years, which is it's time to brush teeth and put on your jammies and then let's get into bed. Oh my goodness, they can't hear anything come bedtime. And, and that's how we are with God sometimes, aren't we? We're like a little kid at bedtime. We're like, oh, sorry, God, were you talking to me? I, I, I didn't hear you. Why are you so silent? Why didn't you yell? And so here's my prayer for you guys. Here's my prayer for myself, for our church, for anyone who is faithfully following Jesus. I want us to establish two rhythms here. I want us to establish a weekly rhythm of worshiping God in his presence with his people every week. We we do this every Sunday. 
Every Sunday, we get to come together as God's people and worship Him, and that is a blessing. I want us to establish that weekly rhythm, but I also want us to establish daily rhythms, a daily rhythm of spending time with God. Notice I didn't say a daily rhythm of a Bible reading plan, did I? A Bible reading plan becomes something that we check off on our box, on our list, isn't it? That's knowing more about God. I want us to spend time with God. Now, we spend time with God in the Word, and we spend time with God in prayer, but do you see how that shifts the motivation? I don't want to just know about God. I want to know God. I want you to know Him intimately. I want you to hear His voice. I want you to feel His presence. Let's establish and build back these rhythms that I know just got skewed by the pandemic. Weekly rhythms of worship, daily rhythms of time with God. Because what happens is the more distant God begins to feel, the more silent He begins to sound, the more apt we are to forget His promises. Amen? The more apt we forget His promises. And like Israel, rather than trusting on God and waiting on God, we turn from God and we trust in things other than God. And in verse 3, what we see Israel do here in exile is they, 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 and they did this before exile, they were developing their own religious rituals, their own way of worship. And God's kind of blunt here. It's like, you're continually provoking me. They were adding to what God had commanded and going against what God had commanded. He gives some examples here. They were sacrificing in gardens. That was a no-no. They were sacrificing on altars made of bricks. That was a no-no. They sat in tombs calling on the dead. That was a no-no. They ate pig's flesh, which praise God in the new covenant we can eat some pigs. But back then, bacon was considered unclean. And the crazy thing is, is they had the audacity to claim that a result of their religion, their way of worship that they had created, that they were somehow more holy based on their notion of holiness and their form of religion. And he says in verse 5, he says, what these people were saying is, keep to yourself, don't, don't come near me, for I am too holy for you. And God responds to this saying, they are like smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Y'all ever had a fire in the backyard when you're out camping with wood that was just way too wet to be burning? And when the wood's way too wet, it is just super smoky all over the place. And you notice that like you get, you get a seat by the fire ring and you're all in the good because the smoke's blowing that way. And then the wind shifts and it starts blowing in your face. And so you pick up your chair and you go over here. And the wind shifts there. And so you bring your chair over here, all the opposite way. And the wind shifts to here and it starts blowing. Wherever you sit, the wind's blowing in your face. So what did we do? We bought a fan. We bought one of those big barn fans and we blow the smoke away from us. Also, that fan works really well when you overflow the baptismal and you have to dry out the basement when you got two inches of water down there. And so our fan is not in our backyard. It's still downstairs from when I did that a couple of years ago. But here's the thing. None of that part matters. What matters is like this worship, it was that nuisance to God, like that smoke constantly blowing in your face and it was irritating. That's how God viewed their religion. Rather than giving an aroma that was pleasing to the Lord, their worship was irritating and provoked God. And so here I think we see our fourth reminder that we need to hear this morning. And it's that God defines the way in which He is to be worshipped. 
Amen. God defines the way in which he is to be worshipped. He, he, he's the one that defines what is pleasing to him. And he doesn't owe us an explanation either. There's things in here that I don't know why. But I know God has said do it this way. Okay, then that's how we're going to do it, God. Because see, when we go against his way, and we do this in a couple of ways. We go against his way by requiring what God did not require. And we go against his way by restricting what God did not restrict. We go against his way by making our own personal preferences priority. And we do this by making secondary and tertiary doctrines primary. And when we do that, like Israel, what we're saying is don't come near me if you don't agree with me because I'm too holy for you. My way's the right way. You're doing it wrong. And rather than glorifying God with our worship, we are offensive and angering God. And he responds in verse 6 and 7 saying, Behold, it is written before me. I will not keep silence, but I will repay. I will indeed repay into their lap both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord, because they made offerings on the mountains and insulted me in the hills. God's people had accused him of keeping silent. Now I think they're wishing he had kept silent because now he's speaking. And again, I don't think we're much different. Because see, I think what we want is we want God to say what we want Him to say. Nothing more. Just say what we already believe. Just say what we already think. And now God's telling His people that their sin, their disobedience, their idolatry, it would not go unpunished. And He does so, He describes it with this illustration of a vineyard, of grapes. And He says in verse 8, Thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, in this cluster of grapes, and they say, do not destroy it. Don't destroy the cluster, for there is blessing in it. And so I will do for my servant's sake. What God's saying is here is that he's not going to throw away the whole cluster of grapes. He's not going to burn down and destroy the whole vine because it contains some bad grapes. And not a few bad grapes. There's a lot of bad grapes in this vine. But at the same time, what he's saying is he's not going to allow the bad grapes to spoil the wine. And so at the harvest, he's going to inspect and sort every individual grape. That's how God's going to treat his people at the harvest. And Paul, he, he says in Romans 9, he says that not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all of Abraham's offspring are God's children. All would be judged individually. It, there would be distinguishing. Some would be delivered and some would be discarded. Nobody would be spared simply because of their birth, simply by association. And the same is true of us today in the church, isn't it? You won't be spared simply because you had really good church attendance. You won't be spared because you memorized a couple of Bible verses and you had some really slick original religious rituals. That's not what saves us. What saves us is grace by faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? We then do those things as a result of our faith. But we get it backwards, don't we? We think if I do the right things in the right order, in the right way, I'm going to be good with God. And what we see here is, no, that's offensive. God wants you to come to Him, to seek Him, to find Him, to know Him, to spend time with Him, to worship Him. And God expands this illustration, promising to deliver those who seek him and judge those who forsake him. He says in verse 9 and 10, he says, 
I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and from Judah, from all of my people, possessors of my mountain. My chosen shall possess it, and my servants shall dwell there. Sharon shall become a pasture for flocks in the valley of Acre, a place for herds to lie down for my people who have sought me. Right, the prophet, he paints this picture of restoration that the exile would not be the end for God's chosen, his servants. And I think here we see our fifth reminder this morning. And it's that those who seek God will dwell in the abundant presence of God. Those who seek God will dwell in the abundant presence of God. Those who sought God in exile, they would return and they would dwell in this land that God had promised Abraham. The lush plains of Sharon along the coast, they would be restored. The, the dry valley would be transformed into this fertile pasture, he says. And then in verse 11, he says, But you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune and fill cups of mixed wine for destiny. Let's stop there for a second. What he's talking about here is idolatry, isn't he? We turn to and we trust in whomever promises to provide that thing we desire, that thing we are waiting on. And you notice that when we do that, we don't seek their presence, we seek their power. We don't desire who they are, we desire what they can do. And what Israel desired most in the exile was to control their fate, to control their future. And as they grew more tired of waiting on God, they rebelled against God and they turned to the pagan gods. And he mentions to here uh, Gad, the Syrian god of fortune, and what we believe to be many, the Arabian god of destiny. And what's interesting about these so-called lowercase g gods, um, they needed to be bribed, didn't they? Did you catch that? They needed to be bribed. And so what you had to do in order to get them to get off their seat and act on your behalf was you had to set a table. You threw them a feast, a banquet, and you prepared this glorious meal for the gods to try and appease them. And after they had eaten, the next step was apparently to get them drunk on wine, and then they might act on your behalf. And God says He would judge their idolatry. He says in verse 12 that they would be destined to the sword and sent to the slaughter. But he also responds to the earlier accusation that he was silent. Because what he says here, right? He says, when I called, in verse 12, you didn't answer. You didn't just let it go to voicemail either. No, you rejected my call. You know, you got the red button and the green button on your iPhone. They didn't wait. They didn't hit the green button. They hit the red button and sent him straight to voicemail. When I called, you didn't answer. And when I spoke, you, you, you didn't listen. You were over there on Twitter. And you're like, what? You, you talking to me, God? Oh, this is a great thread right here. Can you unroll that one, please? They weren't paying any attention to God when He called. They didn't listen when He spoke. And they did what was evil in my eyes, God says. And they chose what I did not delight in. And man, before we point the finger at the Israelites, I think we ought to look in the mirror, shouldn't we? Because I think we do the same. I think, like Israel, one of the things that we fear the most is the unknown future, isn't it? We worry about what tomorrow will bring. And so what do we do? We seize control rather than surrendering control. We seize control from God rather than surrendering control to God because, to be honest, we don't trust God, do we? 
If we trusted God, we'd be able to give it to Him, but we don't. And so we turn to anything and we trust in anyone that promised to provide that safety and that security that we desire. And so we pray, Thy will be done, up until the point that God's will doesn't align with our will, and then we pray, Thy own will be done, don't we? See, when God's words aren't the words we want to hear, we choose not to listen, don't we? And when God's way isn't the way we want to go, we choose not to obey. These are choices that we make. We choose to seize control because we're afraid to surrender control. We're afraid to give it all up to God. We're afraid of being let down by God. We're afraid of being hurt by God. And so we create these other gods that we can control. And creation worships creation. And all that does is lead us further away from God. It leads us away from God and we miss out on feeling His presence. We miss out on hearing his voice. And so, man, before you this morning are two very different paths that lead to two very different destinations. One is according to God's way and God's word, a path and a way of trust and submission to God as his faithful servant that leads to God. And the other is according to your own words and your own way that leads further and further away from God. And he contrasts these two ways here in verse 13 and 14. He says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. My servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. Behold, my servants shall sing for gladness of heart, but you shall cry out for pain of heart and shall wail for breaking of spirit. And they not only lead to two different destinations, they lead to two entirely different eternities. One is a way of suffering that leads to death and eternal separation from God as an enemy of God. He says in verse 15, you shall leave your name to my chosen a curse, and the Lord God will put you to death. Man, but the other way, the other way is a way of blessing, that it leads to life, to eternal life, eternal salvation from God, peace with God, returning to God, relationship with God as a child of God. He goes on to say, but his servants will call by another name. So that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth. And he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth because the former troubles are forgotten and are hidden from my eyes. So man, the choice is yours this morning. Which way will you choose? Whose words will you obey? Will you turn to God and trust in God, listening to His words, obeying His ways? Or will you turn from God and trust in things other than God in a way that will lead you further and further away from God? Because what I need you to see here, what I need you to hear is that God is present. Amen? God is speaking through His Word. We just need to seek Him and we just need to listen to Him. And as you do, you will feel His loving arms wrapped around you, comforted by His promise of salvation to those who seek Him and worship Him, not just now, but every day for the rest of this life and for eternal life. And so that's our sixth reminder that I want us to see, and it's that those who seek God will dwell in the eternal presence of God. We dwell in His abundant presence now, and we will dwell in His eternal presence for the end of time not because of anything you've done, not because of your church attendance, not because of your Bible reading, but because of what Jesus, the promised King, has done for you, fulfilling God's promise of salvation. In His humanity, Jesus was the obedient servant who lived a life in perfect submission to the Father. 
And Jesus in his humanity was also the suffering servant who shed his blood and gave his life for you to pay the penalty you owe to God, to die your death so that you could know God, so that you could have relationship with God, be reconciled to God and have peace with God. We need to remember that promised salvation that God gives us through the death of his promised king. And then number two, what we see in the second half of this passage is this. It's remember God's promised kingdom ushered in by his promised king's return. Remember God's promised kingdom ushered in by his promised king's return. Now he points beyond the Messiah's incarnation in his first advent to the return of the promised king in his second. And he describes the blessings that his servants will experience here in verse 17. He says, for behold, I create a new heaven and a new earth. And the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be gladness. I will reign in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. He describes God's renewal, not just of heaven and earth, but as representations of all of creation. And God, he, He's not just giving it a facelift. God's not just giving earth like a little Botox shot hoping that fixes it. Right? There's no lipstick in the pig here. There's no patching a few holes and sewing up a few scars. It will be entirely new. New creation. New heaven. New earth. Free of sin's presence and filled with God's presence. And Paul, he, he says that this is going to be so, so glorious, so mind-blowing that it's beyond anything the eye has ever seen, the ear has ever heard, or the heart and mind of man ever imagined. So incredible that the former things won't even be remembered. Now hear me, God's not like a men in black agent. Right? He's not going to come up to you once we get in the new creation, pull out that pen and flash that light in you and you're going to forget everything. It's not working like that. No, he says that the kingdom is going to be so glorious that our hearts are filled with joy. Our eyes will be so fixed on God. Our minds so focused on God, worshiping God in His presence that our entire, with our entire being, that the painful things of this life, the painful things of this world, they won't even come to mind, he says. The physical scars that we work so hard to cover will be healed. And the emotional and spiritual scars that we work so hard to try and forget will be forgotten in this kingdom of peace, this kingdom of safety, this kingdom of security, free from the damaging effects of sin. And what he says is that the story ends the way it began, doesn't it? This story begins in Genesis 1 with creation and with man dwelling in the presence of God in a garden. And the story ends with a recreation and man once again dwelling in the presence of God in His kingdom, in His city. So glorious that God Himself will rejoice and be glad with us. His people. And he goes on to say, No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. Now, this is another one of those passages, please don't take this literally. He's speaking figuratively here. He's not simply saying that in the new heaven and the new earth, when the king returns, that there won't be any miscarriages, no stillbirths, that will just live longer lives but still die. No, that's not what he's saying. 
All right, think about this for a second. If you were asked to describe something you had never seen before, that you had never heard of before, that you had never even imagined, how would you go about describing that to someone? Probably with things that you had seen, things that you had heard, and things that you had imagined, wouldn't you? And that's what he's doing here. He's using images from the life that we know it to paint a picture of the life yet to come. Death will have no power in this kingdom because sin will have no presence in this kingdom. He will have swallowed up death forever, he says back in chapter 25. Death shall be no more. The curse of sin will be removed. There will be no more mourning or crying or pain anymore because those former things will have passed away. They will be forgotten. They won't come to mind because they won't exist. And so as we wrap this up, I got some good news and I got some bad news for you. I was saving it here for the end. You want the good news or the bad news first? Bad news. You always go with the bad news. Write that down. Here's the bad news. That's not really bad. It's just not as good as the good. The bad news is there's still work to do in the kingdom. Amen. There's still work to do. We still are going to have a job. We're still going to have a vocation. And think about it. Work is not the result of the curse in Genesis 3, is it? No. No, the ground was cursed and our work was made more difficult in Genesis 3. Work became hard, but work existed before. Genesis 1, we were created in the image of a God who works and who rests. Let's not forget that part. But in Genesis 2, we see that we were given work to do in the garden, weren't we? To work the garden, to keep the garden. And the same is going to be true in the new creation, in the coming kingdom. But here's the good news. You ready for the good news? You won't labor in vain. How many times have you gone to work and been like, well, that was worthless. Like, we didn't accomplish a thing. That ain't happening up there. You want to know what it sounds like up there? You want to know what your job is up there? You want to hear a little story about it? Let me read it to you here. So they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree, the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Right? Instead of being frustrated by our work, we're going to find fulfillment in our work. We're going to enjoy the work of our hands to the point I think work won't feel like work anymore. And what gives our vocation in the coming kingdom its value is the king in whom we serve. Amen? Your job will matter of the utmost. But I think what we also need to see is that there's a taste of the coming kingdom in the kingdom in which we live in, isn't there? Your vocation matters. The people you live around, that you work around with, matter even today. But man, this beautiful picture of what's to come, there's, it's this picture of stability, isn't there? We're going to stay in one place. Think about it. We, um, even as adults, we can be like little kids sometimes, right? We get a little pouty, and we want to pick up our toys, and we want to leave, don't we? And there's this cycle of about every three years we do that. We leave jobs. We leave homes and communities. We leave friends. We leave family. We leave churches but not here. No, here, there, we're not going to be crashing on a friend's couch in the new kingdom. We're not going to rent an apartment to see if we want to stay here in the kingdom. No, what it says is that man, we are going to build a house because we're there to stay. 
the last address you will ever have in God's eternal kingdom. No more moving boxes, amen? That's, that right there should get your attention. There will be stability. There will be longevity. Right? He, we're, gonna, we're not going to plant seasonal crops like you plant corn every year. The corn dies at the end of the year. We're not planting seasonal crops. We're going to plant a vineyard. And what's awesome about a vineyard, other than the grapes, is it takes a while for a vineyard to mature, doesn't it? We're going to be there. We're not going anywhere. Who cares if it takes a millennia for that vineyard to come in to bear fruit? We're going to be there. We ain't going nowhere. There'll be stability. There'll be longevity. And there will be durability like the days of a miter cedar tree that will not be blown down. Everything in this promised kingdom that the promised king will usher in is different than the world we live in, isn't it? And yet at the same time, we have a taste of it today. But the thing that I think I love the most about this kingdom is this intimacy we will have with God. Look at verse 24. God says, before they call, I will answer. While they were yet speaking, I will hear. There will be no separation from God. We are going to know his presence in his voice so intimately that it will be as if we know the answer to every question we ask because God's answered it before we even asked it. You want to know how we're going to build a house and plant a vineyard? God's already told you before you even asked. That's good news for some of us guys that don't know how to build anything. But not only that, he says in verse 25, he says, the wolf and the lamb shall graze together. This sounds familiar, doesn't it? It sounds like verse, or chapter 11 again. The wolf and the lamb will graze together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. The dust shall be the serpent's food. And they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Guys, the curse is over. The serpent has lost. That's the best news in all of Scripture right there. Peace will reign. Everything will be transformed. Everything will be restored. And that's the kingdom we long for, isn't it? That's the kingdom we, we want, that we were made for, to live in that perfect intimacy with God that sin has skewed. And the thing is, is once you catch a glimpse, just the glimpse of that coming kingdom, once you get just a taste of what is in store for us for eternity, the things of this world will never satisfy in the same way again, will they? C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, in his chapter on hope, he describes it this way. He says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. That this world is not our home, that we are citizens of another kingdom. And that's because what I want us to see this morning, what I want us to take away, is that we long for our perfect eternal home because we feel the brokenness of our earthly home, don't we? We long for that perfect eternal home, the coming kingdom of heaven, because we feel the brokenness of our earthly home. And yet, we have been called to live as citizens of that world while we live in this world. Patiently waiting for the king to return, for him to right all the wrongs, for him to restore all that is broken. And we will be sustained by the Spirit as we wait. Longing for the return of our promised King. So we do cry out in hope, with faith, come Lord Jesus. Knowing that God hears. Amen? Longing to live under the reign of our King in His promised kingdom. And so we cry out, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done. 
And until that day, on earth as it is in heaven, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. Why? For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever and ever. And that is our prayer until the day that Jesus returns. These are the reminders that we need to strengthen our faith and fill our hearts with joy from God's word until that day comes. That is why this time is so special as we gather together to remember God's promises, to sing of his glory, and to pray, to lift up our prayers, to lift up our requests to him. And let's do that now. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this glimpse of what you have in store for us. And Father, on those days when it feels like all is going in the opposite direction, when it feels like our kingdoms are crumbling, when all around us feels corrupted, Father, remind us of your promises. These six reminders today, I pray that we would write them down, not just on paper, but in our hearts. We would know that here in your word in chapter 65 is this beautiful reminder, this beautiful picture of what it is you have done, what it is you are doing, and what it is that you will do, all result of who you are. You are a good, good Father. You have given us so much. You have blessed us with so much. And Father, if all you had ever given us was the cross, that would be enough. Father, we thank you for our salvation secured by Christ's death. And Father, we thank you for the promised coming kingdom that will be ushered in by his return. Fill us with your spirit to wait until that day. We pray all this in the name of Jesus in one loud voice together. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.